welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I'm Heather Ludke. I'm a research associate here at ELI, and this week we're talking about sharks. Why sharks? Well, they play incredibly important roles in marine ecosystems, including balancing the food chain and ensuring diversity. But many populations have declined and many species are endangered. So what is being done to protect them? Today, to help answer that question, we're joined by Greta Swanson, a visiting attorney at ELI, who recently published a report entitled, Integrating Legal Protections for Sharks and Rays into Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission Regulation. She's going to give us insight into the international agreements that regulate the conservation and management of migratory sharks. Greta, thanks so much for taking the time to discuss your report with me today. Thank you so much, Heather. So Greta, to get us started, why did you undertake this project? There were a few reasons I was interested in sharks. Of course, they're interesting marine species that play key roles in the marine ecosystem. And they can be thought of as helping to regulate the ecosystem, so they're incredibly important. They're also highly migratory, which means they can cross entire oceans. Sometimes they go even from ocean to ocean. And as a result, they're frequently caught in areas beyond national jurisdiction where individual nations have no regulatory powers and international regulation is required. As an aside, there is currently been developed a treaty to protect the biological diversity of this area. It will, however, build on existing treaties. This project was one way of asking how well international regulation currently operates in these areas. I looked at the Western and Central Pacific in particular because it contains numerous hotspots for sharks and shark catch. There's also several legal regimes that apply to the areas beyond national jurisdiction, otherwise known as the ABNJ, that aim to protect sharks. So a big question in this report was looking at how well they are working together. That sounds like a really compelling and important project. Can you give us a bit more of an overview of the current status of sharks and what's impacting them? Of course, sure. The unfortunate thing is that the absolute numbers of many shark populations have drastically declined and represent only a fraction of their historic levels. Many are considered vulnerable or endangered and few critically endangered. With these smaller populations, sharks simply cannot play their full role in the ecosystem. Our report includes a summary of the IUCN status of listed sharks in the Western and Central Pacific. IUCN is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which evaluates the status of species and recommends conservation actions for them. Much of the decline is attributable to industrial fisheries, either direct catch or bycatch. So to direct address their impact, um, regional fisheries management organizations and conservation agreements both um, have provisions to protect sharks. So you started to mention it, but how do regulations play into this? Fisheries catch sharks both directly and indirectly, as I mentioned. That means that fishermen are targeting sharks for their fins and their meat, but vast numbers also die by being inadvertently caught in huge fishing nets 
and long lines of industrial fishing vessels. An organization like the WCPFC is writing regulations that aims, aims for sustainable fishing, while separate conservation treaties focus on measures to protect endangered species or restore their populations. The treaties have somewhat purposes, different purposes and methods, but numerous similarities. Got it. So diving in a bit then, can you tell me more about some of the treaties that apply to areas beyond national jurisdiction and about their primary goals? I looked primarily at three treaties, the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Convention, known as the WCPFC, and its implementing commission, which enacts regulations. Second, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, known as CITES. And third, the Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species, or CMS, and its Memorandum of Understanding on the Conservation of Migratory Sharks. I also looked at the Port State Measures Agreement. So taking them in order, the WCPFC was negotiated under the United Nations Law of the Sea, and it adopts key scientific and conservation principles of the Fish Stocks Agreement. The Fish Stocks Agreement deals with fish stocks that cross national boundaries, and it sets out management principles that include use of best scientific information, ecosystem, and precautionary approaches. Its primary purpose is to maintain sustainable stocks of fish for exploitation. CITES uses restrictions on international trade to conserve endangered species. It prohibits the trade of species that it lists in Appendix 1, considered highly endangered, while Appendix 2 species must meet certain requirements in order to be traded. Most listed sharks are in Appendix 2, so the, the focus here is Appendix 2. The third agreement I looked at is called the Convention on Conservation of Migratory Species Wild Animals, CMS for short, which sets out conservation principles for migratory species. Its goal is to achieve a favorable conservation status for listed species. This can require restoring populations so they are again a viable part of their ecosystem and are adequate to maintain ecosystem integrity. Numerous members of the CMS and a few others, such as the United States, have signed the SHARKS Memorandum of Understanding, SHARKS MOU, which sets out measures for conservation of sharks. There are many measures there from general to specific. One example is to require that shark fins be attached to the corresponding shark body or carcass at landing. Fourth, the Port State Measures Agreement is important because it addresses catch that is landed at ports. It's frequently difficult to enforce measures on the high seas, which are vast and removed from the enforcement authority of individual nations. However, port states, if they have the systems in place, can enforce the regulations for the catch that fishers want to offload at port. As you mentioned earlier, it does sound like the treaties have different approaches. So how do the treaties interact with one another? It's interesting because there are a number of synergies key areas where the treaties interact. One positive thing is that members of CITES and CMS that are also members of the WCPFC have an affirmative obligation to work to implement goals of the treaties in the WCPFC. However, 
not all members of the WCPFC are members of CITES and CMS. About three quarters have joined CITES, less than half are CMS members. Second, there are numerous commonalities in subject areas and methods among the treaties. They list species of concern, in this case, which sharks are we concerned with? They conduct scientific studies. They suggest or require measures to limit catch and bycatch in fisheries. And they call for legality and sustainability throughout. Overall, I looked at three areas of interaction between the CITES and the WSC PFC, between CMS and the Sharks MOU and the WSC PFC and between the Port State Measures Agreement and the others. Okay, let's talk a bit more about those areas of interaction. So first, what is the relationship between CITES and the WCPFC? As I mentioned, most of the CITES-listed sharks are in Appendix 2, which means that they can be traded across borders if the CITES agency for the country determines that their catch was both legal and sustainable. In deciding whether it can be traded, the agency should, one, determine that the sharks have been caught legally, which generally means in compliance with the fisheries regulations, and two, that the regulations and their implementation ensure that the fishery is sustainable. As to legality, when a shark has been caught in areas beyond national jurisdiction, CITES recommends, but does not require, that the agency look to compliance with international regulations, such as the WCPFC. I think that a better assurance of legality would be for CITES to actually require that all sharks caught outside of national jurisdiction be in compliance with international regulations. Also, for standards to be consistent, the WCPFC and CITES and their national counterparts and the ports should be adequately communicating information among themselves such as data, they should have consistent regulation, and so on. The recommendation is that we're lacking this communication be improved. There are also some gaps in the methods to ensure legality in practice. I mentioned that the Sharks MOU recommends requiring that fins be attached to bodies at landing. The WCAPFC has passed a regulation to require this, but it leaves three alternatives or exceptions. It would be a better assurance of legality is not to allow exceptions to the fins attached to requirement. Another gap in ensuring legality is that there's no requirement for individual identification of each shark caught. The recommendation is to implement a shark's catch documentation system. This would track each individual shark catch from the point at which it was caught to landing and beyond. Third, some countries are still not complying with the WCPFC regulations, even though they're members. When they don't comply, this increases the risk that sharks landed or traded that were caught by vessels of that country were caught illegally. The recommendation is such countries should not be allowed to land sharks. That's legality. A person who wants to trade sharks also has to pass sustainability. And under CITES, this is called non-detriment finding. 
The question is what data an agency should consider in making the finding. Migratory sharks populations do not occur only in the waters of a single nation, and they are frequently caught in areas beyond national jurisdiction. It would make sense, therefore, for CITES agencies to reference regional data, including from the WCPFC, that covers the whole population. There are a couple of gaps here. One, there's little or no regional coordination of non-detriment findings. The recommendation would be to improve science-based non-detriment findings through regional coordination of data. Also, there are no WCPFC science-based catch or effort limits for regional shark species. In order to manage an entire population, science-based limits on a regional level that count bycatch should be instituted. Now, because this involves the distribution, catch limits among countries, it's been suggested that effort rather than catch limits would be more practical politically. Either way, there should be a limit on overall catch. Another gap does not have to do with sustainability or legality is the limitation of the trade approach to protecting species. The critically endangered oceanic white tip shark is an important example. It is an Appendix 1 species that CITES bans from international trade. The WCPFC also bans its catch, retention, and trade. The problem is that those bans don't address bycatch mortality, which is the major threat. And scientists have determined that it will go extinct under current fishing practices. To address that mortality, additional regulation is required. The Sharks MOU could play a role in setting out additional conservation measures to protect and restore species like the oceanic white shark. Thanks for that really in-depth answer. So how do the CMS and Sharks MOU and the WCPFC interact? The CMS and Sharks MOU seek to establish the role of sharks in the ecosystem. They set out mostly non-mandatory conservation standards and actions. And they could inform ecosystem and precautionary approaches to conservation of sharks in the convention area. The main gaps are that the Sharks MOU calls for some additional measures that the WCPFC has yet to implement. Some of these measures are the following. There are two species listed in the CMS Appendix 1, in which countries are not supposed to take these species. So prohibiting the take of basking sharks and white sharks would be in compliance with the CMS. Second, more effective conservation measures would allow recovery. That means actually that the shark populations would increase. Some of these measures are known, others are being developed as the science and technology evolve. As you can imagine, there is still much to learn about sharks and every year there's something new. This measure could be especially important for critically endangered populations such as the oceanic white tip shark. Third, the Sharks MOU calls for enacting a regional quota or effort limitation, just as I mentioned for CITES, that takes into account bycatch and mortality, and not just catch. Fourth, 
fewer modifications and bycatch avoidance could be implemented following the most effective recent scientific information. Usually the WCPFC regulations are lagging behind the most effective recommended measures. A universal requirement for requiring that fins be attached at landing would be of assistance, especially in promoting legality. And then sixth, I want to talk about time and area-based fishing closures. Data shows that area-based closures can be an effective way to protect sharks from fishing pressure, and individual countries have created some protected areas within their own jurisdictions. In fact, the WCPFC regulations authorize creating area-based protections, but have been used minimally for sharks. Some scientists and advocates have recommended creating protected areas for species that are particularly harmed by bycatch or where enforcement is difficult as well as for migratory routes. Large protected areas in the oceans is the challenge with enforcement. That challenge could be addressed in part by using a catch documentation system that records the location of each catch and is verified through remote vessel monitoring systems, which are already required. Another challenge is that for many species, data showing the effectiveness of closures is lacking. However, the WCPFC is to follow a precautionary approach. And if you follow a precautionary approach coupled with adaptive regulation, regulation can begin before full scientific understanding. As more information is known, area closures can be adapted and changed. Thanks for that. What is the role of the Port States Measures Agreement in relation to other agreements? Port state measures are measures to fill some of the enforcement gaps on the high seas, and they can improve the legality of catch that is landed. The port can verify, for instance, all of the required WCPFC documentation. It can verify the CITES certificate for fishing vessels and their catch, including sharks. This agreement requires that essential information be sent to the port before the vessel can enter it and more information after entry and before offloading the catch. If the vessel or its catch is not in compliance, it will be prohibited from entering the port or offloading its catch. Currently, however, the WCPFC does not require all the PSMA or port state agreement measures. The recommendation, of course, is that WCPFC adopt the standards of the port state measures agreement and require its members to implement measures such as identifying ports, transmitting information prior to landing, inspecting suspect vessels, as well as those are not registered or identified as illegal, unreported, and unregulated, and requiring assurance of a CITES certificate, and if there is a catch documentation requirement for that. There is a lot of movement working on this issue, but there are still many gaps so you addressed this a bit as you explained the interactions between treaties, but after all your research and time spent thinking about this topic, broadly, what recommendations or suggestions do you have for treaty updates? First, I want to emphasize and acknowledge that there are already 
strong and creative conservation voices and organizations that are working with the fisheries organizations to improve their policy and regulation. That said, one principle would be to really prioritize conservation over resource extraction. In the marine context, where fisheries production has taken precedence over conservation of species, ecosystems have suffered. Improved dialogue between CITES and the WCPFC and between the CMS and Sharks MOU and the WCPFC and their members and signatories could better ensure legality of catch and improve conservation protections in the fisheries regulations. Also, encouraging and providing support to as many WCPFC members as possible to join CITES and CMS and sign the Sharks MOU to improve their state level commitments would be a good move. As for specific recommendations, some key ones are strengthening port state measures, requiring fins to be attached at landing without exception, establishing a catch documentation system, regional coordination of data and catch limits, and creating adaptive area-based closures together with the existing system of remote vessel monitoring and a catch documentation system could also strengthen protection. It's great to hear people are already doing really important work in this area. That's definitely encouraging. And I really appreciated hearing your take on it and breaking this down both for me and for our listeners. So Greta, thanks so much for joining us today. I, I really have learned a lot from you. Thank you, Heather. It was very nice to talk with you. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.